My name is Jody Turnbow, and I am married to Matt Turnbow, and this is our story. We were married in 2005. We were up for any adventure. We were ready to travel and live in places that we had only dreamed about. We felt a yearning to see the world and how others lived outside of our bubble. In 2007, we moved from Springfield, Missouri to Blue Springs, Missouri as a temporary move. It was more like a waiting spot to see where God would call us next. At this time, we started attending Lakeland. We had not been in a church quite like Lakeland, and we really came to love the passion of following Christ that was instilled each Sunday. We were instantly drawn to Dan and the adventures to China. We eagerly signed up for the first trip in which Dan was taking a large group. We felt God calling us in this adventure, thinking we were going to change the world, but later would find out that God had bigger plans and that our trip to China would change an inner part of us. While preparing for China, we got involved with an organization that had Americans teaching English as a second language. While on our trip to China, we learned that we were placed at Berlitz School in Belgrade, Serbia. Once again, we were ready for the adventure and to see what God had for us overseas. We sold our belongings, we rented out our house only because it wouldn't sell, and we're ready to go. With two bags each, we were ready to live in Serbia for at least a year, if not more. We had so many dreams for this adventure, but God had other plans for us. We were in Belgrade for seven days. When we arrived, we found out that we did not have jobs, but merely an interview. We also learned that we would not be sponsored for work visas, but would only have a tourist visa where we had to leave the country every 90 days to get it renewed. If caught working, we could be fined, deported, or imprisoned. When we questioned the school administrator about the visa situation, he said, I will just bribe someone. It will be okay. We also learned that we could not rent a flat, but had to only live in certain buildings with landlords that could be bought and would claim us as their cousin. This was terrible news, and we had no idea what to do. And after five days of hitting wall after wall trying to make this work, we stood in the pedestrian square and made the decision to go back home. We flew out of Belgrade at day seven, sad, tired, and confused. We were short on cash, jobless, and had nowhere to live. We ended up crashing in Matt's sister's basement and substitute teaching. Our love for adventure and the thought that God wanted us somewhere else did not stop. An opportunity in Colorado, a place we both love, presented itself. So Matt went out and interviewed at a few places in Winter Park, Colorado, and got us both jobs at at the ski resort. This was it. We could go and be ski bums and see how God would use us in Colorado. So so we moved in October, and a month in, we found out that we were pregnant with our first child. I was physically sick with not just morning sickness, but all-day sickness. I was so homesick to be with our family. Being a ski bum was fun, but not sustainable, and the idea of staying in Colorado at the end of the ski season was no longer what we wanted. 
So in April, we returned to our home that we had rented out. I went back to teaching in the same school I had left, and Matt started working for Lakeland as the facility director. Once again, we were back in Blue Springs, Missouri, and at Lakeland. It was a frustrating time because we so badly thought we needed to be other places than here. Through the years, we have tried to move away from Missouri. But God seems to shut those doors, and and we were always left with a feeling of, this is not my plan. Through years of reflection, we have realized that no matter how much we wanted and desired to do something different, God ultimately wanted us here and to stay here. Matt now runs his own real estate and investment business, and I now work at Lakeland as the children's director. These are both jobs that we have dreamed about and have so much passion for. We love what we do, and we love this church. Those years of searching were not lost. We learned to rely on each other and on God. We learned to stop and listen, and we also got some amazing pictures and memories. This is our story. Well, we're glad to have the Turnbows here. So many people here this morning. What, it just warms my heart. I've missed, missed you guys so much. So it's good to see so many friendly faces. And still, socially distanced, still got six feet. Well done. So good job, everyone. Good job. Well, before I was a pastor, I was a biology teacher. I talk about that a lot. One of my favorite things to do is animal dissection. A lot of you probably didn't like that, but I thought it was awesome. One of my favorite dissections was the starfish because they're so weird. I mean, everyone, everyone knows what a starfish is, but like, do you know how a starfish lives? For instance, do you know what a starfish eats? Anyone? Clams and oysters. Starfish eat clams and oysters. How do they do that? Well, they wrap their little sucker feet around the shell and then they pry it open just a crack. And this is where it gets gross. (laughs) Their stomach comes out of their mouth, turning inside out and wiggles its way into that crack. Then they digest the oyster inside of its own shell. And when they have absorbed it, pull their stomach back into their mouth and the empty shell lays there. Yes, oyster fishermen hate starfish because they eat the oysters. So in the 1940s, when they started doing drag nets to bring up oysters, they would get starfish in them and the fishermen would take out their knives and cut up the starfish and scrape it into the water. Another weird thing about starfish, if you cut them up into little pieces, a bunch of those pieces can grow into a whole starfish. So the fishermen hate the starfish. They chop them up, scrape them into the water. They're making more starfish. By the end of the 1940s, they had nearly wiped out the oyster population on the east coast of the United States. Very often, when we try to take control of a situation because it bothers us, we are in conflict or stress, the things we do to try to take control often make it worse. We're going to see some folks today in our scripture who cannot stop chopping starfish. So last week, we had a uh, 
a bad situation. We're in the Bible's shadiest tales. This is our last one for this series, but there are many shady tales. We should probably come back and do this again someday. But uh, this is our last one for, for this week. So last week, David was King David of Israel. He's on his deathbed. He's passing the kingdom to his son, Solomon. He gives his son a blessing to be the king and then awkwardly tells his son, hey, there's also two people that I need you to murder. I never got around to it. Shady tale, shady tale. And we said last week that uh, trying to commit revenge like that is, is sinful. Well, we're back this week to find out how that turns out. So here Solomon is king, and here are some of our characters from last week. We have Solomon's brother, Adonijah, his brother who tried to lead a rebellion and take over the kingdom and overthrow King David and take it away from Solomon. Usually kings back then would kill a brother who did something like that. But Adonijah asked for forgiveness, and three years later, he's still living in the palace. Okay. Then we have the assassin Joab, Solomon's cousin. Uh, This guy killed two military commanders in order to become the leader of uh, Israel's armies himself. David whispered to Solomon as he died, you should kill your cousin. But uh, three years later, not only is Joab still alive, he's still the leader of Israel's armies. Then we have the cursed priest, Abathar. So Abathar comes from this line of priests. Now here's your Bible nerd moment. If you, if you go back to Samuel, when, uh, when Samuel was a little boy, there was these three priests, Eli and his two sons. And his two sons, they hint uh, abused women who would come to worship in the temple. And so God curses their family and says, this family will not be priests for very long. Abathar is from that family. Abathar also participated in the rebellion with Adonijah. You'd think if your family was cursed by an Old Testament prophet, you'd find better things to do with your time than try to lead rebellions against the Old Testament king. But that's what Abathar does. But he's still priest. There's been no retribution. And then we have Shammai the critic. Shammai, we said last week, was a guy who, when David marched by fleeing Israel, threw rocks and curses at David. But then David won the war, so he had to take it all back. And David said, I forgive you for cursing me. But when David got old, turns out he'd been nursing a grudge. And he said, never mind, I unforgive him. Maybe you should kill him. But... Solomon doesn't do that. We find three years later, he's going to be living under house arrest. So all that revenge we preached against last week, turns out, have not happened. So maybe it's going to turn out okay. Then comes stupid. Now all the children are looking around because if you live north of Springfield, you're not supposed to say stupid. And your parents are right. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't call people that. But I grew up in the deep south. And there, if you stretch it out and say stupid, then you're allowed to say it. (laughs) It's just different. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you've done something stupid. You're normally smart, but not today. Right? All right. As you get older and meet more people from the south, you'll understand. So uh, let's hear, here it comes. Here it comes. Adonijah, turns out, is not the first of David's children to rebel against him. David's family is quite messed up. He had an older brother named Absalom who tried to do the same thing. And Absalom started his rebellion in the most disgusting possible way. Absalom built a tent up on the roof of a building so that everyone could see it. 
And while David was out of town, Absalom rounded up all of David's harem girls, concubines, secondary wives, whatever you want to call them. They're women that David married to make treaties with other tribes. Absalom brought all those women, put them in that tent, and then violated them in front of everyone. This was his way of saying, I'm a better man. I'm a bigger man than my father. Back then, if a king could take over another king's harem's girls, it showed he was more of a man. Gross. That's how Absalom's rebellion starts. So Adonijah's been accused of a rebellion, but he's been forgiven. Now, I don't know what Adonijah ought to be doing with this time, but I would think one thing you definitely don't want to do is give your brother any sense of deja vu that all this is starting again. For instance, you would not want to sleep with one of the king's harem girls unless you were having a bout of stupid. Second, or first Kings chapter 2, verse 13. One day Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Have you come with peaceful intentions? She asked him. Yes, he said, I come in peace. In fact, I have a favor to ask you. What is it? She asked. He replied, as you know, the kingdom was rightfully mine. All Israel wanted me to be the next king. Well, that's a great start. Okay. But the tables were turned and the kingdom went to my brother instead. For that's the way the Lord wanted it. So now I have just one favor to ask of you. Please don't turn me down. What is it? She asked. He replied, speak to King Solomon on my behalf, for I know he'll do anything you request. Ask him to let me marry Abishag, the girl from Shunem. Abishag? That's that teenage nurse that David brought in. They had auditions all over for Israel from Sermon 1 of this series. She came in. It's unclear if she was a harem girl or not because David was so old. Did he still do that sort of thing? We're not sure, but she's close enough. And, and Adonijah showed up saying, oh, let me have one of that. Let me have that harem girl for my wife, which is going to give Solomon this creepy feeling like, this is just how your other brother started out. And as soon as Solomon hears that, he goes, that's it. And he orders Adonijah to be killed. Now, I'm not saying that Solomon was right to do that. I'm saying Adonijah was an idiot to bring about these events that put him in a bad spot. He was already living on borrowed grace for having led a rebellion. Now, let's remember that Adonijah was not alone in his rebellion. He had little allies. Now, they were all forgiven when Adonijah went into that tent of the Lord and grabbed the horns of the altar and said, please let the king forgive me. And so all these guys are living on grace. But now Solomon has decided, I think this Adonijah rebellion is starting up again. What will happen to all those people who used to be Adonijah's allies? I don't know, but one thing they would definitely not want to do right now is anything that might remind Solomon of things Adonijah has done. For instance, you would not want to run to the tent of God like Adonijah did just like 36 months ago and grab the horns of the altar and make some big speech about being forgiven. You'd probably want to find some other way unless you were having around a stupid, like verse 28. Joab had not joined Absalom's earlier rebellion, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, he ran to the sacred tent of the Lord and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. So Solomon sends one of his bodyguards to go find out what Joab's up to. And he says, guess what? He's grabbing onto the horns of the altar. What should I do? Solomon says, I've seen this trick before. 
I've fallen for this trick before, but not today. Stab him right there where he sits. And that's just what happened. Now we have Abathar, the cursed priest. He joined the rebellion too. What's going to happen here? Now, even Solomon is a little dodgy about killing a priest. Someone who serves God, even if they are from a cursed family, even if they did participate in rebellion. So he just says, you're not a priest anymore, puts him out to pasture, sends him into early retirement. Which interestingly fulfills that Old Testament prophecy that someday this family would not be priests anymore. Curious. Now that just leaves the critic Shammai, the guy who threw rocks at David. So Solomon fully disobeyed David when he, when he did not have Shammai killed. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think David should have been asking for revenge killings against people David had already forgiven. So Solomon doesn't do it. Solomon, uh, but Solomon not killing Shammai is taking a risk because Shammai comes from the family of Saul. Saul was the king before David. Saul died in a war and David became king. They were not related. There are still members of Saul's family around who probably think, hey, I thought a relative of the king was supposed to be the next king. Maybe me, I'm a nephew, or I'm a cousin, or I'm a brother-in-law. So those people are still floating around, and Shammai is from that family. So Solomon knows this. He doesn't kill him, but he sets this up so that Shammai is not out there causing trouble for him. He places him under house arrest. Verse 36. The king sent for Shammai and told him, build a house here in Jerusalem and live there. But don't step outside the city or go anywhere else. On the day you so much as cross the Kidron Valley, you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shammai replied, your sentence is fair. I will do whatever my lord the king commands. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem for a long time. Did he dodge a bullet or what? All he has to do is stay home. And then comes stupid. Verse 39. But three years later, two of Shammai's slaves ran away to King Achish, son of Makah of Gath. When Shammai learned where they were, he saddled his donkey and went to Gath to search for them. And then then this is the epic one. When he found them, he brought them back to Jerusalem. Solomon heard that Shammai had left Jerusalem and gone to Gath and returned. Do you know where Gath is? Gath is the the city of the Philistines by the sea, Israel's most ancient enemy. You know who's from Gath? Goliath, as in David and Goliath. Shammai basically chased his runaway slaves into North Korea and then came home again, all while he was supposed to be under house arrest. Didn't I make you swear by the Lord and warn you not to go anywhere else or you would surely die? And you replied, the sentence is fair, I will do as you say. Then why haven't you kept your oath to the Lord and obeyed my command? And that's just what happened. They're all gone. This is a shady tale. How are we going to untwist this? First, I want to say, everyone, God is for us. God is for us and God is with us. God is merciful. All these guys, they were living in mercy for three years for things they had done. But 
God does not give us a force field against stupid. I counsel people all the time who are in crisis and who are in bad situations. And a lot of what I say is at first, just don't make it worse. Just don't chop up any starfish right now. You know, a guy's been texting his old girlfriends from college. Uh, maybe he's had an affair. And his wife says that she is willing to forgive him and work it out. What a moment of grace he's living in. And she says, first thing I need you to do is, is take all those girls' phone numbers out of your phone. Delete them. And he says, why? We could still be friends. I've been friends with them a long time. That's really what's important right now, isn't it? Stupid. Had a friend once, years ago. I don't tell these kind of stories unless they're a decade old or older. And uh, his you know, wife kicked him out of the house. Said that happens sometimes. Big disagreement. But the church, we are for your family. We, you know, we can start communicating. Let's see what we can work out. For this weekend, just be cool. Evidently, his definition of be cool was to take a fistful of prescription drugs that his buddy gave him and text his wife and her family over a hundred times in the course of two days. A divorcing couple. A divorcing couple, there's great stress on their marriage, great financial stress, great personal stress, but they're still in their small group, thank God. And they come to their small group one night and they say to their small group, we've decided to buy a fixer-upper lake house. And to which their small group says, say what? You guys are headed toward divorce, you think. There's huge stresses. There's financial stress. Now is not the time to be buying properties together, much less fixer-upper properties together. The couple thought it over and they decided they would leave that small group because those people are a drag. <laughs> Stupid. Had a fellow come in. Uh, he said, uh, it's going to be real hard for my wife to take me back. Um, Especially once she finds out that while we've been separated, I've been sleeping with other women. I said, you've only been separated for two weeks. He said, I know, and I've been sleeping with other women. I said, women, plural? How many are we talking about? He said, I don't know, over 20. I said, that's more than once a day. He said, I know, she's going to be mad. <laughs> well, you got one thing right this week. You know, somebody comes in, I've gotten in an argument with someone in the church or someone in my family. I said, people have arguments, you know, there's a, you, you can apologize, you can come to understand what you meant, say what you mean to say, you can get it all taken back, it's okay. Yeah, but what do I do about all the people who read all the stuff I posted about it on Facebook? Oh my goodness. A high school student says my history teacher hates me. Nah, I mean, you feel that way, but well, I hate my history teacher. Well, that, you, you know, you're in charge of that. So I've stopped turning in assignments. Huh? Yeah, I haven't turned in a single assignment in that class for two months. Uh, okay, so you have, you have two months worth of zeros. Three weeks of school left to fix that F. You've endangered your scholarships and your grade point average. Man, you really showed her. I bet she's crying herself to sleep at night over this one. Genius. No. You, and you find yourself in these stressful conflict situations. Sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing. Just don't chop up the starfish and scrape them into the ocean. Old, old timer, older folks would say, uh, when you find yourself in a hole, 
Stop digging. Now, a harder question, a harder question about this passage. Where is God in this? Where is God in this passage? So I'm going to throw some stuff out here. This is a hard passage. This is a mind twister. But I'm going to bring out some things and see what you think. First of all, the sons of Eli, those priests, were told in a prophecy, someday this family won't be priests of Israel anymore because they're so crooked. And through these events, these shady events, that has happened. God also promised Solomon, someday you're, although you're surrounded by enemies, someday your throne will be secure. All your enemies will be gone. And somehow through these weird events, that has come true. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean our sermon last week about revenge was wrong and it turns out it's okay? This is a hard one. This is a hard one. I'm going to give an interpretation, but I'm 65% sure about it. I had a professor from the United Kingdom once who had a hard passage like this. And he got up and he said, this is one of those moments when you give us your quarter and take your pick. (laughs) Here it is. Here's what I got. got. It's the best I got. Holy Spirit will tell you if it was true or not. It's wrong to commit revenge. It was wrong for David to call for these revenge killings. But David wasn't wrong that these guys were dangerous. And eventually these guys, Solomon didn't do those revenge killings. He let them live for three years. Things went on. But these guys were so messed up that they moved themselves into places where they kind of brought it on themselves. And so this is how it goes. You don't have to strike out against sinful people. If they're truly sinful and persist in it, they'll become their own undoing. You don't have to turn evil and over to overcome evil. If something's truly evil, its destruction is built into itself. So you don't have to go there. God is in control and he tells us things are sinful and he calls certain things evil because they destroy the world or they destroy our lives. And if so, if someone's truly behaving sinfully or evilly, you don't have to lower to their level and use their methods. It will undo itself and you will see the promises of the Lord come true. That's what I got. God is in control. Now, what if it's You and I who are the sinful ones. What if you and I, none of those folks I told those stories about were really stupid people. Uh, They were professional people. They were bright people. They were just having a stupid moment. Some of them a big one. What happens when you and I are having our stupid moment? Stop it is not like an adequate sermon. It's it's great advice. Don't discount it. (laughs) It's not a sermon. What do you do? You seek God's wisdom. Chop, stop, chop, stop chopping starfish and seek God's wisdom. Now, for all of you who are in crisis, for all of you who are in conflict, for all of you who relate to some of those decisions there, you're feeling those temptations, I want to leave you with three things about wisdom this morning. The first thing is that wisdom is found in the scriptures. And now would be a great time for you to start to read your Bible every day. 
especially every night when you can't sleep. If you came to my office right now and told me about your conflict, I say this all the time to people because they're all strung out and weird looking. I say, first thing is you need to keep eating food. Oh, I have no appetite. I'm not hungry. I, I do not care. You've got to put yourself on a calendar, uh, a schedule, and eat on the schedule because people who don't eat get weirder and weirder. You've got to keep drinking water. I never did drink much water. Well, that was a great time to start. Put a little alarm on the phone and drink the allotted glasses a day because dehydrated people also do weird stuff. And you need to go to bed and sleep at night. Oh, I can't sleep. I lay there all, all night. Okay, well, that one you can't help. Can't make yourself sleep. I do not recommend taking prescriptions. That's because uh, most of those prescription sleep aids, they really bring on the stupid. You know this not being able to sleep when you're under stress? This is part of it. This is part of the journey. That laying there with your gut all twisted up, wondering how it turned out this way, you're supposed to do that with God. Wondering, you know, what if you'd said this? What if you said that? You're supposed to run all that with God. That's staying up those weeks. And I've done it. Those weeks when life is hell, that's part of the journey of wisdom. And that's when you get out and read your scriptures. He said, I never had time to read scriptures before. Well, now you've got from like midnight to 4 a.m. every day. If you're feeling really tired, read numbers. <laughs> um, but, but find God's wisdom. Find God's wisdom. Second thing I want to tell you about wisdom is, is that wisdom is slow. This is the most important thing I'm saying this morning, by the way. Wisdom is slow. Wisdom is painfully slow. And there are no shortcuts through this journey. Part of the reason our world is so crazy right now is because wisdom is not slow. See, here's how it's supposed to go. You're in conflict. You're in crisis. You're supposed to have a bad interaction with your ex or a bad interaction with your spouse or your friend. And then you're supposed to go home angry and wonder, well, what if I'd said this? And what if I'd said that? And oh, I just thought of another thing. And next time I see it, and you're supposed to wrestle through all that with God, but you can't get back to meet with that person for days, sometimes weeks. Sometimes you, you realize you were wrong and you want to apologize and you can't get to them for days or weeks and you have to sit with that apology and rehearse it in your mind and with the Lord over and over again. And this is all bringing you wisdom. And the reason, part of the reason our world is so crazy right now is because now we have phones and that shortcuts right through wisdom. So if you're in conflict or crisis, you've got to turn off your texting and your social media until it's over because impulse is your enemy. You go home from an argument and you say, oh, well, what about this? Oh, start chopping the starfish. Oh, you know, one thing I didn't think of that I wish I would have said, and you post it. We weren't meant to shortcut past the Lord. You remember what it used to be? Your, your parents would yell at you and you'd lay there all night and think about it. And now you just text all your friends and say, this is what my parents said. Your parents are stupid. Yeah, I thought so. No, that's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. It, wisdom is slow. It's so slow. And all of that emotion and everything that we want out of and we just want to, we just want to, we just want to fix it is the opposite of what has to happen. You've got to separate yourself from impulse. So wisdom is in the Bible. Read it daily and nightly if you can't sleep. And it's slow. Cut yourself off from all that technology that promotes impulse. And the last thing is wisdom is found in community. Wisdom is found in community. All of your ideas in your head right now sound like good ideas. And, and that's because you're half crazy right now. You need other people in community so that when you say, you know what we thought we should do while we're on our way to divorce court is buy a fixer-upper lake house. Anybody in your community could tell you, don't do that. Don't do that. 
You think, I'm so busy right now. I, I just, I, I don't have time. You don't have time not to. I'm so ate up, I just don't want to be around other people. You need it more than ever. This is what the community and the kingdom of God is part of what we're for. For each other, to give each other this wisdom. Wisdom is found in community. Be with your small group. Be with your Christian brothers and sisters and friends. You need them to get outside your own head. You can do this. God is for you. You're going to make it through this. You got to stop chopping starfish. And then seek God's wisdom. It's found in the scriptures. It's found slowly. You and him working it. And in community. And you're going to make it through. So as you leave today, there's a gorgeous table filled with these starfish. I want you to take a starfish. And if you're in crisis, you just carry it with you. And when you, when you have that brilliant idea, don't do it. Just touch this. Remember wisdom. I'm not going to chop a starfish today. And if you don't need this right now, I think these are rather attractive. You can just set them somewhere in your home on that little bowl of oddities on your dresser or whatever. And when crisis comes, and it will, think, okay, it must be starfish time. I'm going to carry this for a while. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every person here Uh, myself included, would know to seek your wisdom when we are in trouble. Lord, keep us from digging our holes deeper and chopping up starfish. Pray, Lord, that we could know that you are with us and you are for us and you give us mercy and grace and you give us each other and you give us your word. You've given us everything we need. Help us to walk slowly through this journey and learn from it all that you have for us. Pray each person here would know they are going to make it. In the name of Christ Jesus, who has won all victories, we pray. Amen. Amen.